Hello there, and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today, um, I'm coming to you from uh, my van, and um, I've got some sleeping kids in the car, which is why I'm... Um, feel like I'm a super spy here, speaking into my phone, not too loud, not to uh, wake them up. So hopefully as we get going, they'll get used to the sound of my voice and I'll be able to pick up a little bit. Um, today's subject is keep calm and study philosophy. And this is going to kick off um, a fairly long series on philosophy probably. And um, I think it's opening a chapter of my life really. Um, for a while now, we felt like um, I ought to continue on and, and take a, a get a doctorate. I want to teach in theology eventually, and um, uh, it's just such a crowded field to teach in theology in North America that you really need to have a doctorate if you want to do that. As well, I'd like to write books and uh, articles, and uh, again, you need you need a doctorate to do that. Um, and so we looked for options online, things I can do, ways I could study um, while continuing on with my job and my life here because we're not at a stage of life where I can just take five years off and study. Uh, and so um, I found a great school in the States, uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, that was offering a PhD in apologetics. Um, and I could take it entirely on- online by correspondence. And so we signed up for that. Uh, and then... In the process, I actually found out that they're phasing out their apologetics, and it's now a PhD in philosophy. Um, and so it was a little bit of a bait and switch for me. Um, and we had some conversations about whether we should go somewhere else. But due to various factors, they're kind of the only option for me that I can find right now that's really purely online, and uh, that will take um, what I have for a master's. So we're going to continue on with them. Um, but uh, so I took um, took history of uh, ancient what was it ancient philosophy history of ancient philosophy um, and um, the impetus for this podcast was as I was driving along listening to one of the lectures um, I just felt such a tremendous calm come over me and I just thought this is it um, a this is what I'm really good at and I've been looking for what I'm good at for a long time. Um, as soon as I read C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity, I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. But it took me years to figure out what exactly he was doing. Um, I didn't realize what apologetics was. Um, and both of the schools, as I mentioned before, uh, that I studied at didn't teach apologetics. Um, but certainly they didn't teach philosophy. And um, I'm, not, I'm not a New Testament scholar. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. That takes a certain skill set. I love the Bible. I have a lot of it memorized. Um, I'm able to preach from it. But I'm not a New Testament scholar because I languages, um, I don't know Greek, and I'm not real great at parsing out uh, um, languages. Not an Old Testament scholar. Um, I'm not totally a theology guy um, in, in the way that other people that I studied with were. And uh, as I study philosophy, and especially with an, um, a goal towards apologetics, I see this This is where I fit, this is where I click, this is where I can really shine. Um, but also, um, 
I felt like this is what I've been missing. I've been here studying the Bible and studying especially theology for my master's without having any background in philosophy. And in some ways it has been intensely frustrating. It's a little bit like learning to run before you can crawl. Or like learning to multiply before you, you learn how to add and subtract. Um, and how I felt in seminary was, um, you know, Karl Barth was really held up in high esteem by uh, most of the teachers there, especially the main theology guy, which was um, the guy I still really look up to um, from seminary, which is Dave Gretzky, a great scholar, and we're still friends on Facebook and things like this. Um, but what I felt was given to me is you need to memorize this guy. Just memorize what he's saying, and that'll that'll that's what you need to do. Uh, and I felt like I need... And yet he was in a conversation, and I was only hearing one side of the, of the conversation is how I felt. And Karl Barth is really famous for um, writing his book of Romans. That was what started things off for him. Is he wrote a commentary on Romans. And famously, he didn't write a prolegomena. Prolegomena is a fancy word for an introduction. So it would be normal in a, in a um, commentary, especially he was... You know, so, he was writing in a seminary in Germany during the height of, of German liberalism, it would have been very important for him to write an introduction to say, this is where I'm coming from, this is my philosophy, this is how you know I deal with Thomas Aquinas and, and um, Immanuel Kant and, and Aristotle and Plato, and, and this is, you know, um, or in Kierkegaard and whoever else, this is, this is how I see philosophy. And from there, you know, you'll understand my theology. He didn't do that, he just jumped right into, this is what the Bible says. And of course, there's a lot that's admirable about that. Um, but I always felt like, well, where do you stand? Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where you're coming from. Um, and that's how I felt my entire time with Karl Barth, is I don't know where you're coming from. Please give me an introduction so I know where you're coming from. And it, it had the effect of making it seem as though he was incredibly brilliant, which he was. I'm not, I'm not casting any doubt on that. But if he would have written a systematic theology or else an introduction to his work, um, I think we would have known where he's coming from, and then we can engage with him. Okay, that's where you're coming from. All right. Now, you know, I can start to understand you. And um, so in... In finally doing philosophy, because my seminary had taught no philosophy, um, I took a course in philosophy, and all of a sudden I'm like, that's the other side of the conversation. These are the categories that Karl Barth has been talking about. This is the larger context for theology that I've been missing. And I just felt a part of it, because I, f I felt so angry uh, through so much of my seminary. I try not to let it show. Towards the end, um, in some of I wrote, we took, I, I really pushed one of my teachers, can you please teach a class just on Karl Barth? And finally, I don't know if it was just because of me or other people, but finally he taught a class on Karl Barth, which was great. You know, like, this is, lead us to the source, you know. Um, but my last paper ended up kind of an expose and critique of him uh, because uh, I finally wanted to understand him. So the first part of the paper was, this is how I understand him, and then the second part was engaging with him. And it, it probably came off as somewhat angry, as somewhat um, 
uh, one, of the, one of my students that read it said, is this a critique or is this um, a polemic against him? Um, but in studying philosophy, I feel like, like I'm calm now <laughs> as I think about Karl Barth. I, and I quoted Karl Barth, in fact, in a sermon, the last sermon I preached last, last week. Um, I feel like um, I could pick him up again and start reading him. Now that I've got a little bit of a basis in actually what philosophy teaches... Um, so, um, there's more I want to say about that. Maybe I'll come back again to, uh, my feeling of calm. But, um, first of all, let's have, I've got five reasons here why we need to study philosophy. And when I say we, I don't mean like everybody necessarily, but, um, it's, it's important for people to study philosophy. It's important for me to study philosophy. You might say, well, why, why even bother having this podcast saying why it's important to study philosophy? Um, maybe you need to know more about my background other than Karl Barth. Obviously, I studied at a school that emphasized Karl Barth, but also I come from a Mennonite church. My parents are kind of Baptist brethren, and then I go to a Mennonite church. I was raised um, from my teens up, and, and my mentors and pastors and people I call if I'm in trouble are still at my Mennonite church. So those Mennonites and then Baptists and brethren are all traditions that are very much, let's just read the Bible. Um, don't read church history very much um well some of them would definitely read church history but not as an authority and church traditions yeah that can be interesting but they're not an authority we just read the bible just preach the preach what the bible says um and so they would be skeptical of me even studying too much of theology but certainly like don't don't study philosophy i mean goodness gracious um that's that's um we don't want to go there. Uh, just stick to the Bible. In fact, I had a friend that, um, uh, pastor, uh, that was pastor of a church in, in my hometown, and we were sitting down talking, and he talked about, he studied at Briarcrest too, and he, he, um, was pastoring for a while, and then he just had this moment where he looked at all these books on his shelf, and he said, this stuff is not going to feed my sheep. I just need to give them the word, and I need to love them. And he talked about how for him that was formative for his preaching ministry. And he just loves people and he preaches the word. Um, and doesn't mess with, with this theology. Uh, and certainly doesn't mess with philosophy. So I think, um, I haven't really made a big deal out of it. I haven't totally decided that I'm going to pursue a doctorate in philosophy. Um, I need to upgrade my philosophy a bit before I can even apply for it. But I think when I do, I'm going to get some pushback and say, well... Um, do you want to be a philosopher or do you want to be a pastor? Do you want to be a biblical teacher or do you want to have a degree in philosophy? In most people's minds, they're very, very different things. Um, and I'm not sure exactly uh, where I'm going with this, but I just feel like this is it. This this is where I fit and this is somewhere where I can actually make a really big difference. So why study philosophy? Why should I study philosophy? Why should you study philosophy? Oh, also... Um, I'm going to do a bunch of podcasts here. I'm probably going to end up doing about 10, maybe even 20 podcasts on philosophy. So why is it important for you? Um, you know, we've been looking at a lot of biblical topics, apologetic topics, problems in the Old Testament, New Testament, um, apologetics. Why should you take time now to listen to these apologetic lectures, uh, to these, uh, these podcasts on philosophy? Well, you know, you can downplay philosophy, but nobody can avoid it. We all have a philosophy. 
You know, Carl Barth, I mentioned, had said, well, I'm going to write this book with no prolegomena. I'm going to write a book with no introduction. He still had an introduction in his mind. Um, everybody has a worldview. There's, there's, it's not as though there's people that have philosophy and there's people that don't. If there are two types of people, there's people that know what their philosophy is and there's people that don't know what their philosophy is. Um, one, um, one teacher, a book I read one time, said that their purpose was to make people epistemologically self-aware. Epistemology is the, the study of how you come to know things, the study of knowledge, uh, specifically how you come to know the, the way that you observe the world. Epistemologically self-aware. Um, it's not as though people don't have an epistemology or a worldview, a way of looking at the world. Just often, we just don't know what it is. Um, when you cross cultural barriers, all of a sudden you realize, hey, um, my friend from China that I'm studying alongside sees the world very differently than I do. My friend from India sees the world very differently than either of us does. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, maybe I have a worldview. Maybe my way of viewing the world is not the default, the only way of seeing the world. Um, Bruxy Cavey uh, quoted somebody, and he didn't footnote his source. <laughs> but it's always stuck with me. He just said one of his teachers said, um, quote, The only objectivity is subjectivity rendered conscious of itself. The only objectivity is subjectivity rendered conscious of itself. The only objectivity is subjectivity rendered conscious of itself. So, oftentimes when people say, why are you studying philosophy? They're afraid you're going to be influenced by somebody, right? And they're saying, don't be influenced by somebody, be objective. Just stick with the truth. But the only way you can be objective is to know how you've been influenced. We are profoundly influenced by people like Immanuel Kant, Friedrich Schleiermacher, um, by uh, Dante, by um, you know Plato and Aristotle and all the rest of them. Just we don't know it. And when we preach and when we read the Bible um, from the pulpit or not, just in our own study we're reading the Bible, we are profoundly influenced by these people and we don't know it. Um, and so the only way to be objective, to read the Bible as it actually is, is to understand where we're coming from. I'm understand where all our influences are. So that then we can say, okay, this is my culture speaking right here. This is my influence. And understanding also the influence that's going on in the Bible times. And then you can start to say, okay, this is, this is where my culture is. This is how they would have seen it differently. And in the interplay, you can start to see what God is actually saying. Um, and uh, I know that Ken Hovind uh, watched a debate between Ken Hovind and um, uh, and Hugh Ross, and Ken Hovind kept saying, well, you know, if we're not just reading the Bible by ourselves and understanding it just by ourselves, without, you know, philosophy, without science, without anything, just me and the Bible, any other approach means that we need a guru to teach us, and that leads to a cult. <laughs> so um, you can look up the the debate online. He literally said, "If it's not just me and Jesus, then it's a cult." Um, and so you know there would be suspicion from this isn't just Ken Hovind, but he was the one that that um, kind of said that clearly. 
um, that if it's not, if you're not able to just pick up the Bible, read it, understand it, that then you're dependent on somebody else, which means, you know, it, it could lead towards a cult. Um, but the reality is we are dependent on other people. Um, when somebody stands up and preaches, if they believe in the Trinity, and if they believe, um, I mean, whatever they believe about separation of church and state, whatever they believe about um, marriage and sexuality, and a lot of these things come from church tradition, they come from our worldview. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying it's not just straight reading the Bible. Yes, straight reading the Bible is important, but there's a larger context, and it's part of the conversation that the church has been having for 2,000 years. And philosophy has been deeply involved in that conversation. And so if you're bracketing off philosophy, I mean, we're going to get to this in a later podcast, but philosophy was only separated from theology um, around the time of, uh, of the Renaissance period in the 1300s through um, the writings of um, Thomas Aquinas. And we're going to have a podcast on on that. So before that, I mean, the whole discussion that the church was having about the Trinity, about uh, how to worship God, about um, what what were essential and non-essential doctrines, how to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, how to do baptism, all this stuff. Um, philosophy was right in there. It was part of it. And so if we're bracketing off philosophy as somehow illicit or not part of the conversation, um, we're just missing out on a huge amount of the conversation uh, and we're going to end up frustrated as I was in seminary feeling like I'm hearing one side of the conversation but I don't know the larger context of what's going on here. And again, the purpose here, uh, we're going to get to this when we talk about, um, I've already recorded four podcasts on, um, on different approaches of uh, how philosophy can influence theology um, and we're going to see in the early church Certainly, there were people that put too much emphasis on philosophy. We're going to talk about the Alexandrian school and how that basically led towards heresy. Um, and certainly, we need to be careful how much emphasis we put on philosophy. And then there's the opposite extreme with Tertullian, where he felt like we couldn't have any philosophy. And that led towards the extreme of separationism and of division, as we're going to see. And then Augustine had a way of saying... Um, it comes down to authority. So we're going to use philosophy to help us think clear thoughts. We're going to use some of the terms from philosophy uh, and some of the concepts will illustrate biblical concepts. Um, but when there's a conflict, scriptures win because scriptures come from God. Scriptures are the word of God. So we'll workshop that out when we get to Augustine. But again, we can't avoid philosophy. We can, you can try and say, well, I'm just going to sit here and read the Bible because anything else is, you know, is, is man's wisdom. It is man's wisdom, but guess what? You're a man too, or a woman. Um, and so the only way to objectively study the Bible is to first of all study yourself and understand what, what's your worldview? Where are you coming from? What are your biases? What are your blind spots that, that society has given you? Once you get those dealt with, um, you're going to have a much easier time understanding what the Bible actually has to say to you. Um, so the second reason... No, maybe I need to back up and just clarify. I'm not saying... 
again, I'm, I'm trying to push back against people like Karl Barth. I'm trying to push, push back against people like that pastor that, that would tell me I shouldn't study philosophy, okay? I'm not trying to ma- say everybody in the church needs to study philosophy. I'm not trying to say you can't understand the Bible uh, unless you understand philosophy. That's not what I'm saying. Um, so just so, so we're really clear, you can get saved just by reading the Bible. You can know how to live as a Christian just by reading the Bible. You can um, grow in your wisdom uh, and, and really understand the deep things of God just by reading scriptures and being filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't let my emphasis... I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring balance by pushing in a direction where I feel a lot of pressure. But don't, don't let my pressure make you think that I'm extreme. Really what I'm pushing for is something very moderate. Um, I'm talking about putting an extreme emphasis on scriptures, but also having a bit of philosophy on the side, really, is what I'm talking about. But I feel like to have that space, just a little corner inside the church for philosophy, I feel like I need to need to push pretty hard because I'm pushing against my tradition. So I hope, I hope that makes it clear. Um, the second reason, so the first reason we need philosophy is you can't avoid it. Uh, everybody's got a philosophy. Everybody's got a worldview. Second reason is that philosophy makes good theology. Um, we need principles like logic, uh, the law of non-contradiction, is desperately needed in today's theology. Uh, we need deductive reasoning. Here's you know point one, point two. We know these two things from scriptures. Therefore, it follows that we know this from scriptures. Um, we need uh, all the um, logical fallacies, circular reasoning, uh, pointing out when people are you know arguing in a loop. We need to know what um, a question-begging argument is. We need to know what the basic pitfalls that people... Um, I mean, people have been studying logic for for over 2,500 years. And they have, dis- they have determined um, there's certain pitfalls that people will often fall into as they're making an argument. And this is the study of logic or, or dialectics. When that is applied to theology, as it has been done many times throughout church history, the result is very clear thinking, uh, such as we had in Augustine, such as we had in Calvin and um, during the Reformation. Really clear, laser-sharp thinking in theology, which is really helpful. Okay, When you have philosophy, and Thomas Aquinas will talk about how philosophy can become like the handmaiden of theology, so the theology is still in control. It's still scriptures that are the authority. It's still the Holy Spirit that is guiding us. It's still the tradition of the church that is supreme. Um, and, and scriptures are supreme over that, of course. Um, but philosophy, especially logic, is able to come in and help us do our job better. And the purpose of that is so that we can understand God better. So we can understand um how he wants us to live and how we can have um, a blessed life and and how we can enjoy salvation and understand you know his truths. I mean, some of the people that understood that were able to apply this the best were the Puritans, and they had really clear thinking. Um, and, and I know they get a bad rap. Uh, we have this stereotype in our mind about Puritans being, um, you know, overly conservative and, and uh, prudish and, and stodgy about various ethical issues. But if you read their stuff about 
you know, the th- how they talked about God and salvation and atonement and things like this, that's some of the best writing in church history is, is from the Puritans because they were using philosophy, specifically logic, as the handmaiden of theology. So without philosophy, theology becomes sloppy and often inconsistent. Um, it's often not true to scriptures, which means it's not true to what God is trying to tell us in the first place. It's not helpful to Christians, um, and it can become embarrassing or offensive to non-believers. I have found that sound teaching, um, non-believers get excited about sound teaching. Uh, I've you know, done two years now of Bible studies on campus, and a couple of professed non-believers come. Uh, the one reminds me almost every week, or introduces herself as new people come, you know, I'm not a Christian, um, definitely, you know, I'm, I'm seeking, but I definitely don't believe Jesus is God, you know, and, um, but she would get excited with, like, let's talk about gender in the Bible. All right, you want to talk about gender in the Bible? Yeah, that's cool, let's talk about that. And I come with sound logic, sound arguments, this is what we believe, this is why, and the thing that she gets frustrated about is when I don't use sound logic, and I say, you know, this is just kind of what I believe, or... Um, I'm not even sure. Or if I don't have a good answer for why I believe something. Um, when there isn't clear thinking, when, I'll say it this way, when there is uh, philosophy as the handmaid of theology, when there's clear thinking in the church, um, then theology can become the meeting place of equals, where anybody that reads the Bible is able to say, well, I think the Bible says this. And somebody says, well, why do you think that? And they say, well, here's my verse, and here's how I read it. Um, therefore, I build this argument. And the other people say, wow, that sounds like a good argument. Maybe you're right. And, you know, that's honestly the context that I grew up in. Um, it might sound like I'm trying to correct that context, but... Um, no, not at all. Uh, and I was amazed, I mean, I was reading the Bible at a young age, and I enjoyed going to Bible studies as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, because even at that young age, I could say, well, I read the Bible, and it says this, so therefore I believe this, and people would take me seriously. When there's clear thinking, it's, it's an open platform. Anybody can say what they think the Bible says, if they have sound reasons for it. And what happens when um, there isn't sound thinking, when logic and philosophy aren't used in the service of the church, is that you got to resolve this the issue somehow, and so it becomes an appeal to authority. Well, I'm, you know, I'm inspired, or um, you know, I'm the pastor, so you know, you need to listen to authority. Or as somebody tried to use on me recently, well, someday when you're old. Uh, someday when you've lived as long as I have, you'll understand. Um, that's called an appeal to authority, which, by the way, is a logical fallacy. Something isn't true just because you have authority. You need proof if you want to make a statement about what is true or false. Um, and so we, we've all been to churches like this, or we have experience with people like this that they don't have a good argument for it. And when you really push them, well, why? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Well, you know, when you've studied as much as I have, or, you know, if they're really going to play a dirty trick on you, they'll say, well, you know, you, uh, these are things of the Spirit. You need to be spiritually appraised to understand these things. Um, I'm spiritual. You're not. 
I get it, you don't. <laughs> Uh, and there's a verse in Corinthians that they're taking out of context to prove that. Um, really, when philosophy is applied to theology in the right way, it becomes similar to science because science really is based on how theology is. It, it grew out of it. And contemporary theology, uh, contemporary science grew out of, of theology. Uh, where, you know, we're all growing. We're all seeking to understand and anybody can propose theories, and we evaluate them as a community, and we test them. And uh, there's an excitement, there's a willingness to uh, hold our beliefs lightly. Some of our beliefs, I mean, some, some are essential, some are non-essential, but um, we're wanting to understand more about God. And it's a very democratic process, and it's a very much forward-thinking process, uh, where the church is reformed and reforming. We're always going back to scriptures to find out you know, new depths of truth. Now I've got a podcast and a blog uh, where I ask the question, reformed and reforming or evolved and evolving? Because liberals will, will use this phrase, reformed and reforming, to say, oh yeah, well we're evolving, we're changing, we're, we're going to adapt to whatever culture has for us. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going back to scriptures. Again, Augustine said, you know, demonstrated how scriptures are always our authority. And so if scriptures are always our authority, and we're using sound logic, we're using clear-headed thinking, we're going to come to deeper and deeper understandings of what is true, what God has spoken to us, and how that applies in our culture and context. So when it's done right, theology becomes dynamic and life-giving. It becomes living and life-giving in the sense that it's alive. It's not just... You know, like my friend said, there's just these dead books on the shelf that don't give my church life. No, it's alive. And it's life-giving. Uh, it's not just an authoritative thing. Ah, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired. I'm the church. I'm the pastor. So I know and you don't know. Um, what's, where's the life in that? I know and you don't know. Well, I guess I just need to turn my brain off and, and hear what you have to say. No, it's, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. Do you agree with me or not? Because scripture is of the authority. That's living and life-giving. It's communally owned and it's community-forming. Um, it's not just me, myself, and I that's reading the Bible. I'm reading it in the community of the saints. Uh, and this is something that um, some evangelicals have lost. Uh, some evangelicals have overemphasized. Um, but we are reading it in the community of the saints. People have been reading the Bible for 2,000 years. And um, there's richness to be found in reading it as a group, as a family. And it gives us community. Uh, Muslims call Christians the people of the book. And I think in some ways that name is very appropriate. We are the people of the book. We're the people that, that are always reading our Bibles, always going back to the Bible and finding our identity in the Bible. And when Christianity becomes detached from the Bible, it's no longer Christianity, I'm sorry to say. When um, theology works well, it's faithful and faith-making. It's faithful to God. It's asking God, what are you trying to say here? Let's dig into this text, use clear thinking, clear arguments, to find out exactly what you're saying as clearly as we can. And it's faith-making by helping us understand. It's not just saying, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Shut up, don't ask questions, this is just how it is. 
that's that's that sort of faith is really hard to pass on to the next generation. Instead of saying, "Look, here's a Bible, read it," and I've got questions, you got questions, let's pursue God together, um, and let's answer those questions. Sorry, I'm not saying um, getting comfortable with not having answers. I'm saying there's questions, let's pursue it together. There's books being written on apologetics, let's read those books. There's people that have asked these questions before us because guess what? We're not the people, first people in 2,000 years to read the Bible. There's lots of people that have read the Bible before. Um, if this is a good question, it's probably been asked before. It's probably been answered before. So let's see what questions and answers are out there. So it's faithful to God and it's faith-making because um, especially the next generation, they need to have answers and they need to know that people aren't afraid to ask the questions and to, to find the answers. It draws people to God and um, pushes against, it resists the world, the influence of the world. Often the critique of um, philosophy is that, well, that's going to, um, it's going to dilute um, theology with the influence of the world. Well, when you understand the worldview of the world, you understand the, the worldview that you're influenced by and the worldview of the Bible, then you can start to be really conservative and say, no, this is a worldly influence and this is a biblical influence. Just one example, love, the word love, the concept love. In our culture, as probably most of you guys actually know this, there's only one word for love. Well, there's also like, but um, there's one word for love and it's very much influenced by the Romantic era, um, which is a a period of time that followed the Enlightenment. There was the Enlightenment, was that in the 1700s, and then the Romantic era was late 17 and early 1800s, I believe. Might have the chronology a little bit wrong, but somewhere in there. Uh, very much focused on yourself, your own identity, and your own feelings as the guide for life. And so when we talk about love, we're, we right away think about our heart and following your heart and a very individualistic idea. And... Um, in the Greek context, of course, the Hebrew context is something even different. But in the Greek context, there were three words for love. There was phileo, uh, phileo, eros, and agape. And so there's these three different types of love. Um, there's eros, which is desire, usually sexual desire. Uh, phileo, which is like brotherly love. Hey, man, I love you, man. Uh, and then there's agape love, which is a self-giving love. I believe kind of like a mother giving to the child would be like agape love, just giving and not um, expecting return. And so when we read in the Bible, God loves you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, we think of it from our own context. And we think, okay, God loves you. And we're thinking, you know, influenced by the Romantic era, influenced by... You know, everything that everybody from Justin Bieber to, um, to uh, Cher has, has said about love and it's all part of, and Disney movies about follow your heart, all this stuff is, is part of the context that we think when we say love. It's not necessarily part of the context um, that, uh, you know, the author of John would have been writing to his recipients. And when Paul talks about love, He's got a different idea of love than um, than we would have. And so when we understand our context, we understand their context, we can start to understand what what was actually meant by love and how we can push back against the world because these influences are coming into the church big time. Um, understanding God, you know, 
I mean, the Bible says God is love, right? So if we're interpreting that through the lens of what our language means by love, the meaning that's conveyed um, by that word in our only in our context, we're going to misunderstand what it means that God is love. That's going to change our whole theology. Our whole theology of God is going to be changed by that. And that's going to lead to, I mean, that leads to a huge confusion. Well, how can love, how can the God of love uh, also be, you know, God of wrath and justice? Because those two concepts are incompatible in our language. And so, if we don't have good philosophy, we're not able, for one thing, to think in profound categories. Not able to make fine distinctions. And we're not able to understand this is our worldview, that is their worldview. And that means uh, we're not able to stand against the world and keep it from coming into the church. Because the bottom line is if you're just reading the Bible, no commentaries, no church history, no studies in philosophy, no studies in cultural history, you're drinking the Kool-Aid of culture. And you're bringing that with you. You're influenced by culture. And you're bringing that influence with you uncritically. And so there's a very real danger that in not studying philosophy, you're, you're more influenced by philosophy than you realize. And that is um, becoming a corrupt, corrupting influence in your teaching. So thirdly, I've got three more points here, but I'll start moving a little bit faster, I think. Uh, we said we need to study philosophy because you can't avoid it. Everybody's got a worldview. Uh, because it makes good theology and makes theology life-giving and, and good and leads to some really good um, life-giving churches and movements. Um, I mean, if you look at some of the some of the people, so this is another digression, but if you think of some of the people that have really made a turning point in church history and after them there was a period of revival and life that still continues today, those were often scholars that were that deeply understood philosophy and theology, and were able to to chart a new path. And you look at Luther, who was this huge academic guy that was writing, you know, really dense books that we still read today. And Calvin was uh, an academic. They were both they were both educated as lawyers, and they brought their logic into theology and made really great theology. Same as a guy like Jonathan Edwards. Um, again, very well-educated guy, very smart guy that brings philosophy to bear on theology, brings sound reason to bear. Okay, enough said. Uh, the world needs Christian philosophers. If you study philosophy, as most people have to in uh, first-year university, often people talk about, uh, and one of my students here uh, this past year talked about how she almost lost her faith during a uh, philosophy teacher um, or philosophy one. It's a common story um, because most philosophers um, in North America are not Christian. Many, many philosophers are kind of anti-Christian. They bring this anti-Christian bias. And one of their main objectives, stated or unstated, is to um, disavow people of their faith and to instill in them some sort of naturalism or agnosticism or what have you. Um, it would be awesome to have, well, a contrasting example to that, Mark Driscoll, pastor with somewhat a colorful history, um, but I made a really positive impact on me, and 
something that was instrumental in his in his um, conversion was he had a conversation with his philosophy teacher, and the philosophy teacher said, you know, with the questions you're asking, you really ought to check out Jesus of Nazareth. He said, really? Jesus of Nazareth? He said, yeah. And it turns out that was a philosophy teacher that was a Christian. And at a crucial juncture, he bumped Mark Driscoll onto the path of checking out Jesus, ends up becoming a megachurch pastor, leading thousands to the Lord, recording um, thousands of podcasts that are still up and still making a huge difference. I hear I got a kid waking up in the back, so I'll try and speed this along so I can get this all done while the thoughts are fresh. So the world needs needs good Christian philosophers. Also, um, without God, philosophy tends to veer off to the left and end in in subjectivity, in relativism, skepticism. This happened around the time of Jesus. You know, Plato and Aristotle, that was great, but after a few hundred years, it, it was just... Hey, buddy. Um... Um, it's hard to really do philosophy without a fixed point of reference. If God isn't there to provide that, society tends to to go off into these wrong directions. Uh, and we could look at Nazism and Marxism and other totalitarian governments in our day um, as examples of society trying to make it work without God. Contrast that with the Christian societies. Yes, Christianity has blood on its hands. But... If you want to go to a good country in the world, go to a Christian or a post-Christian country. And um, those are some of the best countries in the world right now. Uh, because the world needs good Christian philosophy. And the church needs good Christian philosophers. Otherwise, we we're, are we're reliant on secular teachers. This is going to come up in our podcast on Tertullian that um, if the Christians aren't teaching philosophy to our kids, who is? It's going to end up being a non-Christian, and they're going to come with their non-Christian bias. And philosophy really is the ground floor of thinking. And if we can have a good Christian philosopher that's laying a good Christian foundation of seeing the world through a Christian lens or in a philosophy that's compatible with Christianity, that's going to have a profound influence on the next generation and on our kids. Uh, otherwise, we don't have answers to the tough questions. Otherwise, we don't even understand the tough questions oftentimes. Um, and it's very hard, again, to pass on our faith. Our kids, you know, they grew up in, in secular schools and they have really tough questions. <laughs> and if the church... Um, the church needs Christian philosophers to answer these questions. And finally, it just helps us relax. I don't think I can finish this podcast here. Duty calls. <laughs> Okay, I, I'm going to try hard to uh, persevere here. Um, it helps us relax is the last point. So this is where I started. Um, William Lane Craig, I just listened to a podcast where he talked about um, his study methods. And somebody asked him the question, um, how do you keep it all in your head? And he had some methods for how he, he writes good notes and then he can go back to his notes. He has them all saved and, and categorized on his computer, which is great. But he actually said, believe it or not, the more you know, the easier it is to understand. And he said, take for example God and eternity. How can God be eternal and yet still relate to his creatures, still be personal? It's a very difficult question uh, that philosophers and theologians have been wrestling with for years. And he spent about 10 years really studying this issue. And he said, when I first started this issue, I felt like I was just walking through the fog and the mist. And every once in a while I'd stumble upon a house and... 
and I'd go into that house and understand it, and I would understand that house, and then I'd stumble back out into the mist, and then a few months later I'd find another house, and, and I didn't see how these two related, but, you know, I'd understand this house and that house, and and that's how I felt for most of my masters. I mean, I understood kind of a little bit about Karl Barth, I understood a little about Schleiermacher, I understood a little bit about some of these people, but I didn't really understand how they, they didn't see the big picture. And now, you know, towards the end, as I studied more um, church history, I understood more of the big picture. And as I, my paper on modernity and the roots of classical liberalism, I was like, ah, oh, that, that's how it fits. And when, you when I am starting to study more and more of philosophy, <laughs> um, uh, William Lane Craig, anyways, he said, as he studied more, eventually the mist cleared and he was able to see how all these houses related to one another. And I feel like as I continue to study philosophy, that's where I'm going to get, where I understand, okay, that's where Karl Barth fits, that's where these other guys fit. And that's what is going to help me relax. And that's what, um, that's what motivated this podcast, which is called, uh, <laughs> what was I going to call it again? Keep Calm and Study Philosophy. So I think my podcast is done because uh, my kids are waking up and uh, my, my uh, concentration is absolutely shot. Because uh, I need to go help them out. All right. Be calm and study philosophy. That's the purpose of this. Have a good day. <laughs> Got something to say there, Tobias? Want to say the last word? Hi, Dad. No? All right.